Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. We all have them, preconceived ideas and feelings that can influence the way we think and act. And when it comes to investing, this can be problematic. Jim McGovern's guest on Maximizing Outcomes knows a bit about this as the chief investment strategist at Avantis Investors. Jim, please introduce Phil McInnes. Absolutely. And before I I bring Phil out on the show officially here, I I just want to set up the whole conversation around behavioral finance, because this is a really big topic, a really important topic. Because when we think about the rules of investing, they're actually fairly simple. You know, we, we've all been taught things like buy when prices are relatively low, sell when prices are relatively high, diversify. You know, diversification is your friend, it's your buddy. You can use that to reduce uncertainty. Uh, we should be rebalancing so we maintain the intended risk for our portfolio. And as long as you do all of that with incredible consistency for several decades, you should be just fine. Right. So it seems really simple, but it's not that easy. Psychology plays a massive role when it comes to investing. We all have biases. We have misconceptions. We also experience life events that regardless of how much we know about investing, we have to disrupt that investment process when life throws a curveball our way. So these things can lead to behaviors and decisions that we make with our money that can damage performance and have a tremendous impact on wealth building results and frankly, our happiness as investors. So joining us today is Phil McGinnis. Like Patrice mentioned, he's the chief investment strategist for Avantis Investors. Um, He's going to walk us through uh, a whole bunch of different topics around this behavioral finance part of the investing equation. So with that, Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, we're excited to have you. And um, I know a lot of folks probably haven't heard of Avantis Investors before. So I was hoping we could start off with just a little bit of background on who Avantis is And then if you could tell us what your role is on a daily basis as a chief investment strategist. Yeah, absolutely. So Avantis Investors, so we're actually just a brand inside of another asset manager by the name of American Century Investments. So uh, we got started as a unit inside of American Century Investments back in, uh, we launched the brand in June of 2019. We put our first strategies into the marketplace in September of 2019. And the whole idea was, can we kind of take some of these concepts around financial science, around how to build a good portfolio that takes elements of of indexing, embraces some of the things you were talking about, Jim, in terms of good diversification, keeping costs low, trying to buy low and sell high, also have kind of an overlay that's pretty valuation aware, right? Not just market cap weighted. We think we can do a little bit better than market cap weighted, focus on taxes and tax efficiency. So we got started again back in 2019. I've seen pretty good adoption and traction into the into the marketplace. Right now, today we're sitting at around 33 billion in total assets under management. We work a lot with financial advisors like yourself because we think you understand a lot more around your individual client circumstances. And hopefully we can provide you some some good tools to build out an asset allocation. So definitely the in my mind, what our mission is is to help advisors like you help their clients. And that's pretty apropos given the behavioral finance topic I think we're speaking about today. Definitely. And to go from zero to 33 billion in a few years uh, is, is quite the uh, quite the accomplishment. So tell us about your role. I mean, what, what does a chief investment strategist do on a daily basis? Yeah, I um, 
well, I, I watched my dad manage his own business from, you know, well, the time I remember because <laughs> he started it when he he launched out of, out of high school. And so I always think about it as trying to have a little bit of that ownership mentality of you dive in and you you work on whatever needs to get done. He had always sort of modeled that for me. So I, I try to bring that, but from the standpoint of, of day-to-day, the things that are most important. So the strategies that we manage, we try to make sure that we're setting and managing expectations appropriately with the investors who are going to use them. Because what we want is for folks to have a good long-term outcome. And we think that the uh, one good way of contributing to that is by ensuring that they understand how the strategy should behave, how they should work in different market environments. Importantly, when they might not work as well, because there are always going to be market environments where a specific strategy isn't going to work as well. And we want people to be prepared for that. So a lot of my time is spent around the content that describes our strategies, because we want to make sure we keep that close to the investment process and that we're really clear in how we explain it. So so that's part one. Uh, I spend a lot of time speaking with advisors about how they build portfolios, how they think about different client objectives, think about putting these different sort of tools, whether they're, they're ETFs or mutual funds or whatever, together into an allocation for clients and how and how that's deployed. And then there's a whole other piece of it around some of this content that we're talking about today around, around behavioral finance. So I have the pleasure of working with folks who are much smarter and more talented than me on the academic side, both on the asset pricing side, sort of that part of financial science, but also on this behavioral finance, behavioral economics kind of field. So folks like Mir Statman, Hal Hirschfield, Suzanne Shu, people who have a lot of expertise and have been studying these things for for really decades in some cases, uh, so that we can try to understand, are there ways that we can use some of this knowledge around the biases we might be prone to, to make us more self-aware and to hopefully help us make better decisions? Because that's really what we're after at the end of the day. If we can help people make better decisions, help people avoid some of these pitfalls, we think that long-term they're more likely to have a better outcome. And then that's why we're here. That's why we exist. Perfect. So sometimes when we think about the the human brain, it's not always uh, exactly wired to make us all good investors. Uh, I think there you know, we all have biases, and uh, sometimes those are those are hard to admit when it comes to investing. Where should somebody start when they're starting to learn about behavioral biases when it comes to investing? I mean, what are what are some ways to kind of kickstart this topic for our listeners? So I think one thing that's useful, and it's something that that you laid out of of the rules around kind of stacking the deck in your favor from an investment perspective, they're reasonably simple. And and I draw a corollary to sort of overall physical health when you think about diet and exercise. My wife is is a dietitian. And so she's got a PhD in nutritional sciences. It's something that she studied pretty intently and she understands, you know, all those inner workings of how can you improve somebody's diet and and hopefully have a, a positive physical impact there. But I I draw a corollary there because if you think about even from maintaining that physical health, the the concepts around diet and exercise are reasonably simple. Like if I make sure I have a you know a plate with a lot of colors on it, right? The idea of I got diversification across types of foods, I don't eat too much of it, and then I exercise a lot. So I think about the calories that I'm expending versus the calories that I'm consuming. You can do reasonably well, right? You can do reasonably well, but we all know uh, when it's you know. 9 p.m. after dinner and the there's a packet of M&Ms uh, on the counter that's staring you in the face it's an entirely different thing to have sort of the the discipline or the the know-how of of how to deal with that interact that I think there's some of that right that draws really closely into investing as well where you mentioned if we can if we can keep costs low you know if we can manage taxes if we can have good diversification 
and then be disciplined of of trying to make sure that on average we're sort of buying lower and, and selling higher, then we should actually, you know, markets have done a pretty good job rewarding investors over time for that. But boy, it becomes a heck of a lot harder when all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, the front page of the Wall Street Journal or or CNBC and you see markets are down, you know, two percent today, or the the Nasdaq's down or the Dow's down 250 points. That becomes a lot harder in that moment to think back to those sort of first principles. And so in my mind, it's it's actually just trying to be a little bit more self-aware of knowing when these these biases are, or as Mir Statman refers to them, he refers to them as emotional shortcuts, right? Kind of cognitive shortcuts, just being more aware about what they are so that we can try to help ourselves recognize when we might be more prone to them and know that if we can kind of take a second, take a beat and try to move from, I'm going to use a more technical term from behavioral finance with like system one versus system two thinking. So you think a thing about thinking fast and thinking slow, the book there, move from that system one thinking into that system two thinking and try to think a little bit more pragmatically about the problem rather than immediately jump to that conclusion. I think that's definitely step one. What do you think about just the, the way we, we we see patterns as a human species? I mean, that that's something that helped us survive over the history, right? We we see that the seasons are changing. Maybe time to stock up on food, right? We see that there's a uh, an animal that could be a threat to us. We decide we want to run. How how does just our own seeing patterns or that, that fight or flight mechanism in our brain? How does that work against us as investors? Yeah, I love that, Eduardo, our, our CIO. He always talks about the the concept of okay, well, if you see an animal with stripes, right? If you see an animal with stripes and your assumption is, well, that's a tiger, right? That's probably a a good thing to have as an assumption out in the wild. Because if you just assume all the animals that have stripes are are tigers and you want to make sure you don't get too close, you want to make sure you flee, on average, you're going to do a heck of a lot better than somebody says, I'm just going to assume anything with stripes is a zebra, right? Because that tiger is a lot more dangerous than that zebra is. The reality is if we take that sort of pattern recognition of, of us wanting to see a pattern and jumping to a conclusion, when you start looking at something more like the financial world, right? I think that can be a little bit more dangerous because because of that need to kind of think about or or want to take any set of data that we see and find what the pattern is. Well, there might be a perfectly good reason why the pattern exists and why we would expect that to continue. But more than likely in a lot of cases, the pattern is just there by chance. And if we take the pattern being there as a signal of what should inform what we're going to do going forward, when it just happens to be there by chance, then we're likely making a suboptimal decision, right? So I think knowing that we're going to be more prone to wanting to identify the pattern. And uh, Jim, I think you and I have talked about this in the past. If you think about, if I give you a sequence of of numbers, right? If I give you three numbers and and I ask you to sort of guess the rule that describes these numbers. And you can ask me additional questions around, well, does, you know, does the next, does this next number fit that rule? There's a, there's Hal Hirschfield is one of the academics we work with. He, he does this in the intro to his class uh, each year. And so he puts, he puts three numbers up there, right? The numbers are two, four, and six. And he asked them to, to guess the rule, right? And, and they can ask questions. He said almost almost by rule, right? But almost immediately, people start guessing, right? And they say it's it's a sequence of increasing of increasing even numbers, right? They're going to increase by two. And even for the listeners, as I said, two, four, six, the next number that probably pops into your head is eight, 
Eight. Right. I was just going to say it. It's got, it's got to be eight, right? <laughs> and and eight, right? If somebody said, "Well, if I if I put eight down there, does does that fit the rule?" the the answer would be yes. But the rule is actually a little bit broader than that, right? The rule that he he sets is any sequence of increasing numbers. So, if instead, if we didn't jump to that notion of trying to find the pattern and wanting to have it fit what what our prior is on what that pattern should be based on the three numbers we see. And we guess something like, well, does nine fit the rule or does seven fit the rule? The answer there would have also been yes. And that would have broadened our perspective that would have said, okay, well, maybe it's not what I originally thought. And I think that sort of first sort of challenge to our our baseline assumption, it's not going to be useful in everyday life of I've got two brands of toothpaste. They all they both look reasonably similar similar and one's on sale for half the price. Oh, maybe I need to turn both these over and really dig into the ingredients to see is there a reason that's on sale, right? It's probably safe to say, okay, they have a an excess of supply that they're looking to get rid of. I can go ahead and save some money here. I'm going to grab that toothpaste and go on with my day. I don't need to spend more time on that, but if I've got an opportunity between two investments, right? And they both have, let's say they're in the same industry, right? But one stock is trading at a much lower price than the other. So say, well, I can just go get this one. It's on sale. It's at a lower price. That's not enough information to understand whether or not that's a good deal, right? To understand whether that's a good investment to make. We have to be a little bit more thoughtful. Yeah, everybody likes a good sale, except when it's stocks. <laughs> <laughs> then people get nervous. Yeah, you know, as you're as you're talking there about about patterns and and how we our brain thinks, we start to say, oh, that number's got to be eight. Think of the cliches that people hear when it comes to investing, and they're looking for patterns. Um, like one comes to mind, people say, "Sell in May and go away." How does that relate to what you're just saying? Yeah, I think that's great. You know, there there was a lot of stuff even around something like the January effect, right? So these things are set in and in my mind, there can be reasons why something exists again that are foundational, we think are logical, we think are are sort of backed by theory. And then there can be these things that we would refer to more as as spurious correlations or just luck in the draw of the of the data, right? And so one one that I'm a big fan of is if you look at the correlations, and I, I shouldn't say I'm a big fan of of the outcome of this, but if you look at correlations between ice cream consumption and drowning, you will see a really, really high correlation, right? And you think about it, it's like, boy, well, ice cream must be dangerous if you're if you're gonna go swimming, right? Be careful. But the reality is it's Look, those deaths are a lot more likely to to happen over the summertime when there's a lot more people in the water, which is also when you're probably going to want a nice cold kind of tasty treat, right? So when a lot more ice cream is being sold. So you you kind of got to take a step back and think about is there is there a natural reason why something like, you know, should stocks perform better from January through April or May versus the rest of the year? There's not really a good reason why stocks should perform better in that early part of the year versus the the latter half of the year, right? There's not an underlying logical reason. So just because there was a pattern that existed, we can't necessarily expect that to persist going forward. When when investors, and this is really from a bunch of different areas of life, it's not just investing, but we, we kind of have a, a hypothesis. We think things should work a certain way. So we start to find information that supports that feeling. You know, people who say, I can't remember the exact technical term, but I, I remember this was a few years ago. There was some chart that was all over, it was all over the, the financial media and they were calling it the death cross. 
And it was like, if these two indicators make this on a graph, this is called a death cross. And it was like 50% of the time the market tanks. But it was also like, well, 50% of the time the market doesn't tank. But there was a lot of investors that were really scared going, hey, when this happens, like this is what's going to be the next outcome. I better now make a decision based on that. What do people do about that? That confirmation type bias. Like, like, what are ways that they can they can be more aware that this is what's happening, and 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 maybe make better decisions and kind of stop themselves from making drastic changes based on some of these uh, these biases. Yeah, the the confirmation bias is definitely a a big one, and the the concept of once we have a hypothesis, it's really natural for us to to seek that affirmation about it, right? It's described in in the literature sometimes as as that internal yes man or yes woman, right? Of once we have again a hypothesis or a belief, it's wired, right? Of going back even to the stripes. If I th- I thought I saw a movement there and I thought there were stripes, then we're immediately going to want to say, well, no, I I'm sure it's a tiger now. I'm absolutely sure I'm going to get out of here. So I think in the context of finance, it's the concept of one thing that I think is important in, in my mind is actually taking a beat, right? Of being able to say, well. Do I need to make this decision right now? Right? Do do I have all the information in front of me, or do I need to actually broaden out what sort of other facts and circumstances I'm I'm thinking about? Can I find somebody who has a different opinion than I do, right, or a different hypothesis and hear their argument and be able to see if okay, well, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong, right? I think that's a really really important thing. When you said, uh, you know, here's the the death cross and 50% of the time the market goes down, I couldn't help but think of uh, Anchorman, right? 50% of the time it works every time. And <laughs> that's right. I, I, I think, yeah. I think that's a, another one where, again, sometimes it's even just, I, I think a lot of people would benefit from a crash course in, in statistics, you know, in statistical analysis of there's a lot of things that get thrown out there as I'll say, there's sort of labeled or veiled as as facts and it might be a factual point but if you take a step back and think about what's the statistical significance of this quote unquote fact then you can see that again it might just be there just by chance right if something ha- is is happening 50% of the time as you said well 50% of the time it's not happening and so we need to again challenge our assumptions of just because there's a chance of it happening doesn't mean that it will happen because I even think about the way people search for information. Yeah, you know, they they hear the the de- I'll keep using the death cross example, but it's like okay, fifty percent time the market drops, that's scary to me. It's going to eat up part of my net worth. I don't want that to happen. Let me do research all about how the death cross leads death cross leads to declines in the market. And, and we'll see this even with things like like health conditions, right? You think you might have certain symptoms. What do you start to do? You jump online, you start searching for all the things that confirm that these symptoms lead to what you're most fearful of. So are there any any other tools or uh, or I guess the things that investors should watch out for when it comes to some of these biases uh, when they're when they're searching for information? I think that's a good point. i I was actually thinking back to if you think about sort of the march April twenty twenty time frame, right? which, Obviously, a lot going on in the world at that time. You know, kind of pandemic outbreak, everything else, um, and a, and a lot of tragedy there. But if you think about it, it was also a, a very volatile time for markets, and there's a lot of uncertainty for investors. And I remember I, I took a screen grab of this because when you mentioned kind of going out and and how do we search once we have a an idea or a thought that we're looking to go learn more about, how do we search for that? Well, I know a lot of people go to Google. Right. And so if you typed in, should I in, in Google, the top two sort of predictive 
you know, suggestions of what you, you should type next or what a lot of people are searching. The first one was, should I sell my stocks now? The second one was, should I buy stocks now? Right. And that to me, it was just sort of the epitome of, well, depending on what my prior was, if I typed quick enough, right, then I'm going to, I'm going to get a lot of information that is trying to support what I thought I should be doing right now. But there's, there's just as many people about, it seemed like just as many people searching for the opposite, right? For the opposite piece. And so I think that it's really important to think about the counter to what your prior is, right? Think about, are there other people that might have be drawing a different conclusion to this and how, if at all, should that impact my thinking, right? Am I being anchored on something that is just because I don't have enough information available to me? Let's spend a minute talking about, because you mentioned earlier, shortcuts that we take in our head, right? I think it's we've all got little shortcuts, rules of thumb, little tricks that we use to make decisions in everyday life. But what about those shortcuts we have in our head when it comes to investing? Yeah, shortcuts. There are shortcuts that I think are probably useful. Uh, so if you've got two strategies, you know, two mutual funds or ETFs and they both seem to do something that's that's reasonably similar and one is is five times more expensive than the other one i think it's a nice shortcut to be like well i'm going to take the one with with lower expenses in that case right that's a little bit different than thinking about two stocks right the uh when you're thinking about two different investment vehicles that are both buying a lot of stock but uh i think it's when you when you think about where the the errors and things can come in in terms of those shortcuts i think it's really important to kind of step back and think about the goals, right? I think in in a lot of cases as it relates to investments, there's a prior belief or an assumption or just a shortcut to, well, I want the thing that's going to give me the best return, right? If if you work in finance, if you work in capital markets, those discussions were coming up on the holidays here, right? Those discussions around the holidays, it's very likely that a lot of them are going to be well, what stock tips do you have for me? What are the hot, the hot stocks I should get into? When I get asked that question, the first thing I ask is, well, what are your goals or your objectives with the assets that you have, right? What are you trying to to accomplish? What's the the plan that you're trying to set out for? Because if you tell me that, you know, here, I've got some cash that I want to put to work in the market, I'm going to tell you to do something that's really low cost and broad based and, and then hold it for a long period. My answer is going to be reasonably boring, but that even, I don't think there's a, I'm sort of taking a shortcut even there rather than asking more holistically of, well, what do you already have invested in the markets? What liabilities do you have coming up? You know, what what are your plans in terms of retirement or in terms of saving for your children's education or whatever else? And that's again, getting back to the part of the reason that we think the role that folks like you, Jim, play is so critical because it's really easy to take a shortcut and think about something in isolation, but what's likely to be a lot more productive is to take a step back and think about it in the context of of the broader overall plan and going back to the conversation we were having just around exercise and diet and everything else you know it's like well should i go lift weights today it's like well you know it's probably better than than not lifting weights right but if all you do is is i don't know 200 bicep curls every single day right that's likely not going to get you to the overall kind of physical health and well-being and and things that you're looking for right it's it's not a it's not a holistic plan in isolation it's probably better to go do than than nothing else but it's within the context of the whole plan that these things matter right i, I think it's also you know making sure you have all the correct information 
and it's it's complete and it's it, as you were talking there maybe think of an old joke this will be a little bit corny but i'll go with it you know about a guy that was you know, going through a park and he sees some other guy sitting on a bench with a dog sitting next to him and he goes up and he says hey does your dog bite and the gentleman says no it, it doesn't so that guy reaches down to pet the dog and the dog almost bites his hand off and he says wait i thought you said your dog doesn't bite he says my dog doesn't bite that's not my dog <laughs> right so it's right. it's something where we have to be asking the right questions and i think when we don't have all the information or asking the wrong questions. I think we're, we're prone to making errors as investors. So I, how, how, I think that's exactly right. You're, you're welcome to borrow that joke anytime you want. So <laughs> somebody asks you that at a cocktail party about you know, stock investing tips, you can just <laughs> throw that joke at them. Yeah. So, so how does all this lead into how people perceive the markets and perceive investments? Because I think there's a lot of influence of these, these external, you know, the external messaging people are getting and at least these biases of investments, but what can you tell us about just when people are making decisions and, and how they're looking at the market as a whole? Are they even looking at the market? What, what's some useful information that people should be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that concept of anchoring, right? Sort of these emotional anchors is is really important there. And that when I, when I think about it, right? If if I give you three indexes, you know, if I give you the the S and P five hundred S and P five hundred index, the the Dow or the Russell 3000 index. Now, Jim, you're a trained financial advisor, but you know, if I ask you about those three indexes and, and I'll ask listeners to kind of think about it and come up with their answer before we, we give you it, which one do you think is the best representation of the overall US stock market, right? The S&P 500, the Dow, or the Russell 3000? So Jim, now that people have had a second, what would you say? Well, I, I know the correct answer, so I'm kind of you know cheating here a little bit. But I, I think what most investors say is they almost every time they'll either reference the S and P 500 or they'll rest, they'll, they'll reference the Dow. Yes, and and I think you'd be right in saying that that's what most people would would reference. But the the reality is the Russell 3000 is the best representation of technically the the overall U.S. stock market, right? So that overall U.S. stock market. The Russell 3000 makes up around 98% of the investable universe, right? The S&P 500 is definitely better than the Dow. The S&P 500 probably makes up, call it around 70% of the investable universe uh, in the US, the 500 largest companies, but the 3000 by definition, right? There's almost 3000 companies in, in that index, whereas the Dow is really only 30 companies. And that's what's called a, a price-weighted index as opposed to a market cap-weighted index, which I don't need to get into the technicals there. But the reality is it's giving you a much more sort of constrained or concentrated snapshot than what the overall stock market is doing. And that's just in the US, right? If we expand that beyond to think about global markets and these indexes that track a global stock market, then you're actually expanding that even further. If you go sort of as broad as possible, the MSCI All Country World Index, uh, the Investable Market Index, there you're getting close to you know around 9,000 companies, close to $70 trillion in, in outstanding capitalization, right? That's very, very different than something like the Dow. Yet, if I log on to, again, a website uh, where I get most of my news or I turn on you know, local news, what are you mo most likely to hear about? You're mostly likely to hear about, here's what the Dow did today, or here's what the Dow has done so far today. And that give that can give you some information, but it's not giving you a really true picture of what the stock market is doing. And so given that, right, I think it's really important, as you said, to even think about what information is, a, is available to us so that if we have a knee-jerk reaction of, 
you know, because again, that those are just benchmarks, right? There can be a whole host of other reasons why my portfolio or your portfolio look different than those indexes based on the the goals and objectives we have from a financial perspective. So we we can sort of complicate the problem even more. But if you think about something as simple as that, of if I look at the Dow and I see it's up and yet my portfolio is down and that's going to cause me to have a negative emotional reaction and make a bad decision. Well, the Dow isn't even telling me what the stock market is doing really, right? It's only it's only one small indicator of many. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like you, you watch the news and you the thing that you think is the market is up and then you look at your own personal account and it's either not up as much or even worse, it's down. I think a lot of investors go, well, this isn't working something's broken and they make decisions based off of that. They go, I'm going to change my mix. I'm going to change firms. I'm going to do something to try to take action. And yet the thing that they think is the market wasn't the market in the first place. Exactly. And and that compounds as well, where when you think about the age of information that we're in, which you know it's accessible, right? It's a lot faster. Than, and there's so many benefits to this, right? There's so many benefits to people having access to, to more information and having that access more quickly. So I don't want to imply that these are all negatives here, but I think there there is an impact, a potential impact on, we think about sort of your emotional well-being as a long-term investor, because if you think about, again, markets on average, right? They go up over time, right? You, you zoom out over any of these sort of peaks and valleys that you see and you look long term you see that markets have have rewarded investors who who are willing to stick with it but in order to get those quote unquote long term average returns that means i i kind of have to stick with it through the bad and the good right as soon as i start jumping in and out then i start missing out on some of the returns i might miss out on some of the bad ones but more than likely i'm going to miss out on some of the good ones and so i i start to earn something different than that average. And if you look at, we looked at uh, 2021 as an example in a calendar year, right? Where the S&P 500 did really, really well, right? It was up almost 30%. So a really, really good year for, you know, for large cap stocks in, in the US. But if you break that down, right, there's 250, just about 250 trading days in a given year, right? Where the markets are open. And you break that down between positive and negative days, well, in that year, that calendar year, 2021, what percentage of days would you guess were were negative, Jim? Of that whole year? Yeah, that uh, whole year. I would say probably a little more than half. Yeah. So, so, so you're even maybe maybe you're more cynical than me, right? Uh, so it was it was it was, <laughs> so it was a, a really volatile year. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was yeah. It was it was 43 percent, right? So pretty close to half. 43 percent of days were negative, right? Again, if I pull up my my smartphone and I go to whatever app I use to track markets at the end of each day, and I looked at that return and was it highlighted red or was it highlighted green, right? 43% of those days, it would have been highlighted red. When if you zoom out for that whole year in a calendar year, it's it's not a long period of time statistically, right? But if I zoom out to that calendar year and you have a return like that for the overall year, to feel bad after 40% of those days of boy, you know, markets lost money again, you know, my portfolio is down again. That's going to take a toll, right? That's definitely going to take a toll. The idea of, of I, I almost think, you know, there's an element to this of once you come up with a plan and you feel good about the allocation that you've come up with, one of the best things you can do is sort of leave it alone for a while, right? Maybe not even look at it because if we look at it, then we're going to be. We, we know that our emotions are going to start to come into play of, 
boy, you know, should I, should I start making tweaks or, okay, the market's close to hitting its new high. That means, you know, is, is the peak coming, right? Well, there's a lot of evidence to say markets should keep hitting new highs, right? Like that, that again, they're, they're going to, uh, with capital markets, what you're funding is innovation and risk, and that should have a positive expected return each and every day. So I think there's, there's an element for me too, of if we know that these biases can creep in, one thing that we can do is just limit the, the amount of opportunities we have to open ourselves up, right? To having to grapple and deal with this and know that I came up with a good plan. I'm comfortable with what it's going to do for the long term. So I don't need to look at it every day or every week. I, I can step back and give it some more time to work. This is just making me think about just our human nature to avoid pain and, and seek pleasure, right? If we're looking at our portfolio constantly and we're looking at the news and it's like you mentioned, 40 some percent of the time, it's it's negative. It's painful, right? And what we look for as investors is what doesn't appear to be as painful. So we might see that, okay, this asset category is down, but that one over there, that one's been up for a while. Human nature is to sell what's not doing well, relatively speaking, and chase what has done well. And that is the exact opposite of our rules of investing, right? We're supposed to buy when prices are low and sell when prices are high. And I, I think just our own human nature to avoid pain and, and seek pleasure forces us sometimes to break those rules. I think that's exactly right. That's a concept that Mir Statman talks about, Professor Mir Statman, around hindsight errors and regret, right? So the idea of, oh, I, I should have known better, right? I can always go back and look at these other investments that had higher returns than my portfolio, and you get that sting of regret, right? And he has a quote that I'll share where he said, hindsight errors might well be the most dangerous among the cognitive errors tripping up investors, what they do is they mislead us into thinking that our foresight is as accurate as our hindsight, but it isn't. And I think that's really the last part of that is really important, right? To think that just because I can observe something in the past and I sort of have that immediate sting, right? Of saying, I should have known better because you immediately almost go into that confirmation bias of, you know what? Part of me thought that part of me thought that was going to happen. Right. And I should have listened to that part. Because now I'm worse off than I would have been had I made that decision. The implication there, right, that just because you can observe something and know it as fact now that you should have been able to predict it, that's a really dangerous leap to make, right? We can't, and, and to your point around sort of that pain versus pleasure piece, if we emphasize that pain thing, it's going to be kind of crippling, right? And we're, we're just going to want to shut down and, you know, maybe completely get out of markets or whatever else. And I think that that's where those those emotional sort of, again, shortcuts can really be an expensive error when you think about a long-term investment plan and trying to have a good retirement. Just, just a couple other quick uh, quick topics here, then we'll, we'll start to wrap up. And I'm, I'm thinking about how numbers can kind of mess with our heads a little bit. And, and I think I'm thinking about times when I watch uh, financial news and, and they'll always flash this uh, stat, like, had you owned XYZ company you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, and you put a thousand bucks into it, how much would you have today? Come back after the break and we'll show you. And there's always like this feeling of, if I only knew how much would I have put in, right? And how much would I have now? And I, I just think it messed with people's heads. I think you, you spoke eloquently about that. What about um, just the way averages work? You know, we hear things like the stock market averages a certain rate of return over a certain uh, time period. But uh, you and I were talking recently, and it's shocking to find out how often the market really falls within the tight range of that average. So can you just Absolutely. give us a little bit of history perspective on the S&P 500? We'll just pick on that one and, and and just shed some light on on what that dispersion of returns can look like. 
Yeah. So if we look, you know, we've got about 95 years of data for the S&P 500, right? And what we see is it's done around 11% a year. The average for the calendar year is 11.3%, right? Which is a which is a good return, right? That's a that's a nice long-term return. But if you if you think, right, if you if you sort of look at that across time, right? If you were to put all of those calendar years line them up together, it'd be really hard to identify a pattern, right? Of when it's been up, when it's been down, how much it's been up versus how much it's been down, you know, sort of the bigger years versus the the smaller years, either positive or negative. But if we shift that view and we think about it more as the distribution, right, of returns from highest to lowest, and you think about going back to that average of 11.3%, well, if we say, well, how often has the calendar year return been pretty close to that average? So if we throw a, a window around the average and say either plus the average plus 2% or the average minus 2%, so sort of a 4% range around the average, how many calendar years has has the return fallen in within that window? Out of the last 95, it's only been six years, right? So a really, really small percentage. And so when you think about the concept of well, this is the average return that I should expect from stocks in a calendar year. If what we take that as is that's the around the return that I should should expect every year in stocks, well, then our we're going to be disappointed. We're setting ourselves up to be disappointed, right? Because what that tells you is if you look at that distribution of returns, way more of the observations fall far away from that average than close to it. But what we're looking for, right? And I think this has really two components to it. Number one, if we want to earn that long-term sort of average earn that we see, again, going back to something we said earlier, we have to stick with it for the long haul. That's the way that you earn the average is you, you consume the entire sort of sample of data, right? If you think about, or if you wanted to earn that average return, you would have, safest way would have been to consume the entire sample of that data. The other piece of it though, this is again something where I think you all as, as financial advisors play a really important role. I think we have a responsibility to share that range of outcomes with with investors, right? To let them know that just because this is the average, because I think we can again be prone to maybe focusing too much on the average of this is around what we think we can earn. I think we have to let everybody know that just because this is the average, that doesn't mean it's what we should expect to earn each and every year. We have to show them that full range of outcomes so they can have a, a picture and an understanding of, okay, I, I should be prepared for this, right? I should be prepared for this because it is within that range of expected outcomes. And hopefully we've set up our financial plan with that in mind. Right. I think investors deserve to know what the extremes look like, you know, because we don't get to own the average, right? We, we may over time get to a, around what the historical average is for, for a very long time period, but you have to get through the extremes in the moment in order to enjoy that long-term average. So we use this analogy all the time with our clients that, and this goes back to, I think, tying a lot of the stuff together is that if you make decisions just based off of averages, you, you could be, you could be wildly misled. So I could say, Hey, Phil, we're going to, bring out two buckets here for you that are full of water and the average temperature is 100 degrees. And if you just took that information, so well, that sounds like a nice, comfortable bathtub. I'll go ahead and put my feet in you know, one leg in each bucket. And then you found out the actual temperatures were nowhere close to the average. You might have one that's boiling hot and one that's ice cold. 
as soon as you put your your you know one leg in each bucket, the extremes are going to surprise you and cause massive discomfort, and you're going to jump out of both buckets, right? So even though the average temperature might have been accurate, it might have been the hundred degrees that I told you, but those extremes are just so uncomfortable. You're like, I just I can't do this. I see that happen with investors all the time that they're told, hey, your portfolio should average about X but they don't know what the extremes can be. They put their money in and then starts to touch those extremes and they're scared and they jump out. Exactly. And therefore, they'll never get to that long-term average that they were looking for. So had they known that ahead of time, they probably made much, much different decisions. Exactly. Especially when I, I couldn't agree more with, with all of what you said, Jim, and especially when you think about that path and how many different paths that it can take right over a short period. So the sort of the anchoring around when you happen to invest, right? When you happen to start to get into capital markets and kind of where valuations were at that time or anything else. Again, we believe that equity markets each day, right? They're sort of resetting prices to the point of there's a there's a positive expected return, right? There's a positive expected return, but we know that the realized return is not always going to be positive over a short period of time, right? That's where the unexpected component of returns come in, but we have to be prepared for that because again, if we're, if we're focusing on, well, how do I kind of predict that unexpected component? Well, that's, that's just it. It's unexpected by, by definition, right? And we think you can spend a whole lot of time, energy and effort trying to predict that and not really do any really good benefit to a portfolio. So what we're better off doing is focusing on that expected component and then remaining disciplined through time. So Phil, I think this is a fascinating topic and, and something that, that our audience is probably just starting to learn more about. Any other parting thoughts before we, we start to wrap up? No, I think I mean I think we've we've covered a really good bit of it. And and I'll tell you, I'm I'm far from an expert in this arena, right? I feel like it's one of these areas where the more you learn, the less you're comfortable with that you feel like you know. So you keep wanting to dig wanting to uh, dig a little bit deeper, but I think that that biggest one in my mind is is going back to what we sort of said at the top of just being a little bit more self-aware, right? Knowing that we're prone to the biases, that maybe that in and of itself, it can cause us to maybe understand and, and take that beat to say, is this a time where the availability bias or confirmation bias is likely to kind of rear its ugly head and kind of take a step back and say, maybe I should go talk to somebody about it. Maybe I should get a different opinion and see if that maybe can, again, make us react a little bit less emotionally and maybe a little bit more pragmatically. Definitely. And I, I think nowadays with uh, with technology and, and the, the ability to learn lessons from the past, again, the past is not going to predict the future, but you can certainly learn a lot from history. We've got some great tools that'll help you with uh, visualizing some of these different concepts so that you know, if you aren't making snap decisions, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier, Phil. It's like, okay, we don't want to, we need to take a step back sometimes. And I think spending some time bouncing ideas off of a professional, whether it's us or somebody like us, but being able to visualize the way some of these things work, what I've found in just everyday practice, it, it does lead to investors making better decisions because they have the information at their fingertips. 100%. So Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know this is going to be a very valuable episode for for our listeners. Folks are out there listening and, and they're not familiar with Avantis and they want to check you guys out. What, what's a good way to learn more about Avantis Investors? Yeah, you can go to our website, avantisinvestors.com or talk to your financial advisor and and they might know something about us. So more than happy to help in any way that we can, but it was a pleasure to be here, Jim. All right. Thanks, Phil. And Patrice, let me turn it back over to you. Well, first, before we go, I must say, gentlemen, this was such a relatable, information-packed episode. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it myself. Listeners, 
you know, learn to be self-aware, recognize your investment emotions and biases and, and talk to other people. And with that in mind, how can people reach you, Jim? A couple ways that you can reach us. You can check us out on our website, www.mcgovernwealth.com. You can also email us at info at mcgovernwealth.com. And just let us know that you're a listener of the show and you have some questions about your portfolio. We'll be happy to, happy to be a good resource for you. And listeners also follow this podcast, Maximizing Outcomes. To know when the latest episode is ready for you, please like and share it with others. And thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number. 0F67329. AR Insurance License Number 7119103. California Insurance License Number 0F67329. Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103. Compliance Number 2023 166095 expires December of 2025.